Good morning again. We are going to continue in our sermon series, looking at the lives of the patriarchs. What's a patriarch? Thanks for asking. It's a, it's a family. It's a, it's a grandpa, a son, a grandson, all of them pulled into service by God, who had a plan to bring a Messiah one day, but he had to start somewhere to create a nation through whom he could reveal himself to a watching world. So Abraham, he chose, out of it seems out of nowhere, to become the very first person to be uh, a part of a new nation that he was going to create through him and his, his descendants. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these were in a line of people, related people, that were going to end up creating 12 tribes of people, uh, that we end up with um, 12 nations of Israel, that 12 is an important number, 12 disciples, and all that kind of thing. So this is the foundation. This is the very beginning of God interacting with his people to to, um, reveal himself. But what we find out, particularly with uh, these patriarchs, these foundational fathers of the faith, is that they're flawed people as well. And today is one of those stories. I'm not really sure why we needed to know how Abraham messed up. You know, you kind of want your heroes to be flawless and great character and uh, to do amazing things and amazing faithful. But they're not. They got so much stuff that they bring baggage uh, as well and insecurities. Yet what we see through this time is that God is still faithful, even when we are not. So we're going to look at uh, Abraham's uh, life in chapter 12 of Genesis. We're going to begin at verse 10. And it's a bit of an interlude. God has called Abram into service. He says, come to a place I'm going to show you. Leave your family, your friends, your homeland. And he's going to take them to Canaan. But then, you know, things didn't quite turn out like Abram thought. And so he thought he would have to pivot and make, make up uh, his own mind of what to do. So it says in verse 10 of chapter 12 in Genesis, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live because the famine was so severe. Remember another time when that happened? His, his grandson Jacob is going to take to 12 sons and end up in Egypt again because there was famine in the land. Some kind of reoccurring theme. So verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he told his wife Sarai, look, I'm aware that you are a hot-looking chick. No, it didn't say it. I'm... <laughs> Aware that you're a beautiful woman, it says, my interpretation. <clears throat> when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, she is his wife. And then they'll kill me, but allow you to live. So how about you say you're my sister, so things will go well for me for your sake. That way, you'll be saving my life. In other words, lie to save my life. As Abram was entering Egypt, the Egyptians noticed what a beautiful woman Sarah was. When Sarah, Pharaoh's officials saw her, they brought her to the attention of Pharaoh and took the woman to Pharaoh's palace. He treated Abram well because of her, so Abram acquired sheep and oxen, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as a wife for myself? Now here is your wife. Take her and get out. So Pharaoh assigned men to Abram. They escorted him, his wife, all that he had out of the country. 
Talk about an immigration issue. Genesis 13.1, And Abram went out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him. Lot is the nephew. And he went down to the south. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south all the way up to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been from the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. You know, Moses messed up too. Killed and actually murdered somebody to try and maybe get an insurrection going, getting the people out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery. James and John, the two disciples in the New Testament, they wanted to call fire down on a Samaritan village and burn them up because they weren't very nice to Jesus. Peter, when Jesus was about to be arrested, he cut off the ear of one of the servants who was trying to arrest. Jesus had to pick the ear up and put stick it back on. It's like, Peter. Seriously? <laughs> you know, all throughout the scriptures, people just took matters into their own hands. They decided, maybe we don't need to ask God about this. We just need to do something. We can't just sit here and pray. We need to get out there and be busy. Well, there's lots of things we do, choices we make, decisions on the spur of the moment that are made without really consulting God. We think our experience or common sense or knowledge is, ad- is adequate and then we find ourselves in a mess from which God has to extricate us in, or situations we need God to fix because we've messed things up. What was Abraham thinking? He could have just stayed and trusted God in Canaan where he was, even though it looked bleak. But he decided to follow where it was lush and green down in Egypt. Some people call this Abraham's sin, I don't think it's a sin. I think I'd use the word folly. Folly is when you make a bad decision and you have bad consequences that are very costly. Well, Egypt was the closest place for him to go that was uh, not under a drought. It, um, it was very flourishing, stable monarchy. Its capital was Memphis. You can still find the ruins of Memphis near the pyramids of the Sphinx. We don't have, there we go. Uh, and um, in fact, the, the, the pyramids predate Abram's call. So Abram would have seen these pyramids, same as Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, Mary and Joseph, even with the baby Jesus, went down to Egypt, running away from Herod at the time. They would have seen these same pyramids. They're ancient. In fact, they're the only remaining um, archaeological site is one of the original seven wonders of the world. So he went south to, uh, from where he was to um, Egypt where the 16th dynasty, the Hyksos kings, about 2250 B.C. Um, and uh, he was, it's kind of like I say, taking an interlude from God's plans. Stepping out on his own. Didn't consult God, didn't ask God's permission, didn't ask God's direction or his blessing. He just said, pack up, we're heading to Egypt. God does give us choices. He does allow us a certain amount of freedom. Like, you don't have to pray about which toothpaste to buy. You know, 
You don't have to pray about wh- which, which way to drive to work. Should I take the Trans-Canada? Should I go through Mission? Take low heat in? It's like, oh, God, show me. Sometimes it's important to listen to that small voice that is telling you something, prompting you, and maybe it, you take a different route to work that day. Kim and I were on a walk yesterday around Fish Trap Creek in Abbotsford, and the road was blocked off, and there was a fatality right there uh, on, on the uh, old Yale Road, of a minivan and a truck. Uh, met five people, I think, were sent. I don't think they, they all made it. It's sobering what can happen in a second, in a moment. We are free to make our choices, but we're not free to choose the consequences of our choices. And in this particular situation with Abram, he chose to go where he thought he was saving his family and all of his flocks and his herds down to Egypt, find the water, have the fields. But in the end, he actually put his life and everything else in jeopardy. He put himself in an extremely dangerous situation because of his choice. He could have lost his life He could have had all of his flocks and servants uh, taken into uh, Pharaoh's court. His wife would have become part of Pharaoh's harem, and that would have been the end of the story. We don't even actually find him calling on God to free him. Maybe he didn't know God does that kind of thing yet. He he wasn't really in that relationship. It was developing kind of an understanding of who God is and what he does at this point. So, as I say, some people look at this as Abram's sin, going down to Egypt, lying about his wife being a sister. Uh, but the truth is, actually, they had the same dads, that they had different moms. So they were technically brother and stepsister. Uh, it was weird back then. Uh, other commentaries call this uh, Abram's first big test, that he would have to choose to trust God or choose his own opinion. His choice was going to lead him to a place he didn't want to end up. It actually uh, could have ruined everything because of what he chose. So going to Egypt was not expressly forbidden. It's not like he disobeyed God by going to to Egypt. Uh, God doesn't actually have an opinion either way, it seems. Sometimes when we don't hear from God in a particular situation that we're facing in our own life, Uh, We feel like we're on our own, that we can just do whatever seems best in our own eyes. So uh, I give Abram a bit of the benefit of the doubt that he was doing what he thought was best. The problem is he didn't check with God. He just moved out on his own. He left, my dad likes to say he was an old pastor guy. He, He used to say, when you're at a, at a crossroads, you don't know where you're at. Go back to the last thing God said to you. What was the last thing you heard from God? Hang out there until God tells you something different. Don't just strike out on your own thinking that it'll all work out because we have brains and we have common sense and we can we have experience. We can figure this out. Well, that's not how God works. He works through obedience and faithfulness. And so when he tells us to do something, you do that until you know for sure uh, he is changing the plan. In the end, uh, Abram's fear came true. He wanted his wife to to lie and say she was his sister. He was afraid for his life. And in the end, that's exactly what happened, that the the Pharaoh's people took her to Pharaoh, and uh, they would have killed him, perhaps. We don't know. But in any case, (laughs) 
They got rid of him. Said, you know what? You, you messed things up so badly for us. We don't even want you in our country. And they had an escort to push him right across the border and say, don't ever come back. You're a persona non grata in Egypt from this point forward. What I see in this passage is truly a lack of faith in trust in God. He didn't believe God was going to provide for his family during the famine. Abram did not believe God would keep him safe if he was completely honest with the Egyptian rulers either. He, he decides to make things worse as he goes until finally God does intervene, does a plague. I don't know what the plagues are. I, I assume they're extremely po- painful, maybe boils, maybe who knows what it was. But somehow the Egyptians connected what, it, what was going on with Abraham and Sarai and, and the, the plague. They realized some god was mad at them. And the last thing they did was take Sarah into uh, to Pharaoh's court. So they said, that's got to be the problem. We're okay up until this point. This foreigner, this interloper comes in, messes with everything. We got to get rid of him. So uh, for the sake of a good, clear biblical exegesis, let's stop for a moment Just to take note that the Bible does not promote certain things here. We have an account of Abram. We've got his historical record. We have his uh, genealogies, the family things going on. But let's just be clear what the Bible is saying and what the Bible is not saying. First, uh, it's not endorsing deception or lying to rulers. Just because Abram did it didn't mean it. And God helped him out. It's not okay. He messed up. There's Ten Commandments for a reason. Don't lie. Don't be deceiving. Second, he's not endorsing striking out on your own apart from God's clear directive. It's just describing Abram's actions, and we get to see the consequences of his actions. The actual principle that Abram should have followed was to stay where he was until God gave him a different direction. God came to Joseph in a dream and says, go to Egypt. Herod's going to be killing all the, the children three years and under in Bethlehem. Take off, take your family and say that he, God could have said just the same thing. But you see, Abram's the first guy. There isn't a historical record before him. We don't have a relationship and an understanding and stories to tell about God before Abram. So he's, he's the first guy figuring it all out. Second, the fact that Abram's dad, Terah, had two wives resulting in Abram and Sarah being born does not endorse having two wives, okay? Sorry, guys, it's not how it's going to work. And also, uh, Abram marrying his half-sister, no. So this is what happened in the Bible, but it's not endorsing it, right? There's the difference between prescription, which says this is what you're supposed to do, and description, which describes what's going on. So the, the humanity involved in this story is really astounding, that they would share such clear details of a guy messing up and God having to rescue him, bring him back to a safe place. So the Bible is clear when it states the facts of what's going on, uh, but it's not necessarily endorsing for all time what we should do. Also, we have to uh, take into account cultural, uh, ancient cultural practices, historical context, political environment, even the vast differences between how people lived in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have primarily a, a, a nomadic lifestyle. Most of the people in the Old Testament that we have lived kind of nomadic lives, had tents and herds and flocks, uh, stayed out of the cities for the most part. 
Whereas in the New Testament, almost everybody had settled down. They had homes in cities and traveled from city to city. Uh, we can also give Abram the, the benefit of the doubt by, by saying that he didn't actually lie to Pharaoh, and he didn't actually offer his wife to Pharaoh to save his own life. They came and took her away, and they gave him, so to speak, a dowry uh, in exchange. And so he's, you know, <laughs> in the end, he messes up really badly, but in the end, he ends up with gold and silver and flocks and servants and sent back to Bethel with his wife. Is like, well, that was fun. <laughs> so... Uh, it's interesting how God can rescue us and make even bad decisions deal with the consequences of, of that. So uh, he, uh, I also find it curious in this passage that it's not recorded that God actually spoke to anybody. He didn't give clear verbal or vision directions or, or visions into what to do, but he did intervene. He did see that Abram was in jeopardy and he took uh, matters into his own hands. He, st he stepped in, pre prevented Sarah from being uh, harmed. Um, Abram would have been the father of a nation, but my view, Sarah would have been the mother of a nation. And he prevented her from being harmed, stepped in at the right time, protected her. Uh, and I like, I like that about God, that even when we mess up, even when we don't call on him, oftentimes he still has a plan. He still loves his people. He still wants our best. And so he will intervene. He will change situations or circumstances uh, for our best because he, that's the kind of God he is. The other thing uh, the Bible is clear on in this particular story is that our, our misdeeds um, are more than likely going to be exposed. Everybody knows about Abraham's journey to Egypt. For all time, for thousands, for thousands of years, we all know that he messed up. It's a lesson for us to read. It's there for a reason, not just to show that Abram made a bad choice, but to show how God can help in the midst of our bad choices, that the consequences could be extremely severe if God doesn't intervene. So God's promise to Abraham is that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will protect you. I will make your name great. The whole world will be blessed through you. Even when you mess up, <laughs> I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to help you. I've got a plan, and I won't let anyone mess with my plan. So Abraham's obedience would bring great blessing to many, but his disobedience could also bring great harm to many, including his own family. His decision could have cost his life and ruined everything. So it says in Genesis 13, going on to the next chapter, verse 1, Abraham went out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, Lot was with him, in the south, and Abram was very rich in cattle, silver, and gold. And he went on his journey from the south, went to Bethel, place where his tent had been at the beginning, went right back to where he had left. Glad nobody had moved in while he was gone. So once Pharaoh kicks Abram out of Egypt, Abram retraces the path back to Canaan, back to the altar he had created in Bethel. And it says here he calls on the name of the Lord. And this is significant. Name of the Lord at this time, the only name he knew was Yahweh. Um, in the Old Testament, people refused to even say the name of the Lord. It was too holy to pronounce, to, to demean the name of God by pronouncing it with uh, human lips. So he calls on the name of the Lord, 
he could have blamed God. God, why did you let me do that? God, why didn't you, um, you know, save me in that which he did? He could have just walked away from God. He could have quit on God, as a lot of people do, and God seemingly doesn't come through for me, or he's too late, or he's not doing things fast enough. They just walk away from God. They say, well, I'm not interested anymore. I tried. God didn't come through. So maybe he doesn't even exist. And God's saying, you know, what's going on? I'm right here. I've never left. Why are you so impatient? Why do you turn so quickly away? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? So let there be no doubt, I don't believe in magic. I don't believe there's magic words. If you say the name of Jesus, people don't have to be healed. Poof. In the name of Jesus, poof. That's not how it works. The name of Jesus isn't magic. It's not some incantation that we use calling on the name of the Lord or the name of Jesus. It's Jesus who intervenes. Jesus is the one that's present. Jesus is the one that heals. We invite him to be in our, in our situation as we are with, with Lexi right now. Jesus, step into this world. Make a difference. Do what you do best, God. Intervene. Even when we're messing up, you can make things right. The name of the Lord is, this, is that you're coming... Uh, you're making an appeal when you're calling on his name. You make an appeal is when Paul made his appeal to Caesar. Uh, you're submitting to an authority of the one you are appealing to. You submit to God's authority over your life. When you call on the name of the Lord, you're putting yourself in his presence, under his authority to say, God, I need you right now. I need your intervention. I need your help. I, I've come to the end of me. I've got no more knowledge, experience, or anything to do. Uh, I need you to help me at this particular time. Forty-two generations after Abram, six different empires later, the same hillsides that Abram is walking to from Bethlehem up to Bethel, sorry, uh, Jerusalem up to Bethel, would be the same roads that Jesus would walk down. The, the, the empire was no longer Canaanite when Jesus came. It was now occupied by Roman soldiers. He would come riding down a hill on a donkey into this ancient city of Jerusalem. He was part of this plan that God had all along. And so God intervened in the life of Abraham because he had Jesus in mind. He intervened in, in Abraham's bad choices because he had you and me in mind. Abraham was the father of Isaac, whose son was Jacob, the father of Judah, whose son was Perez, the father of Hezron, whose son was Ram, all the way down to the last line, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. God has a long-term plan always in mind. It's not just about here and now and tomorrow. It's about generations away. And we are part of that plan. Jerusalem is the oldest part of Jerusalem. They say it was settled in the fourth millennium B.C., making Jerusalem one of the oldest cities in the world. During its history, um, Jerusalem has been completely destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. In the coming weeks in our study of Abraham, we're going to see that a king came out of 
a town called Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. And it's going to bless Abram. Abram's going to be in a, in a battle. Abram's going to win the battle. He's going to come back through Jerusalem. And a king comes out of this ancient city to bless him. He gives Abram wine and bread. And the king's name is Melchizedek. Very mysterious character. Talks about Jesus as being as after the order of Melchizedek, this high priest of Jerusalem. Lots of stuff happening in Jerusalem, but some believe this to be representative of a future Lord's Supper for us. Jerusalem would be the last place Christ had a meal with his disciples, and it would be the place of his crucifixion. All this history is happening in the very same location. Generation after generation after generation, God is looking for the faithful people. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and our helpers to come forward at this time to help pass out the Lord's Supper. If there is something right now in your life that you've made bad choices, that you're looking for God to intervene and make things right, he will. If you're struggling because you're in a place you know you shouldn't be, that, you, that you, he, he has something different for you, but you've, you've walked away, he can bring you back, bring it back to your Bethel, to the last place where he's encountered you, remind you of his love for you, and help you to be where you should be in your life. After we have the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a time of prayer at the front, and you're welcome to come to the front and pray with those who would like to help you to get back on track or to pray with you for God to intervene in the situation you're facing. Whatever it is, use this time to reconnect with God. Let this be a Bethel moment, an altar moment for you. Come back to that relationship with God even now.